The woman of Proverbs 31 does quite a bit. She sows. Her mouth and mind are full of wisdom. She teaches her children. She looks well to her household. Because of all these things that are lived out of faith, her children rise up and call her blessed, and her husband as well. And it's not the physical beauty that is praised. It is the beauty that comes from a life of faith. Um, Wesley, um, I think it was Charles, who was famous for his hatred of jewelry. Uh, and, and, and he thought that it was just terrible that women would, would wear jewelry. Um, was out preaching once, and he was at this community, and somebody was really after, to ke- after him to catch him something, uh, doing something, um, you know, in kind of a theological bind. So they were having dinner, and the guy grabbed the hand of a woman who was sitting there and held it out, and there was a ring on it. And he said, so, Mr. Wesley, what do you think about that? And he said, well, that's a beautiful hand. And that was, that was the end of the conversation. That was a beautiful hand. So it's, it's really what lay in here that determines beauty and it, for the lifetime. So let's pray. Heavenly Father, you provide for us a beauty that comes from you. It's not determined by what culture says or what society says. It's not even determined by the externals. It is determined by the heart that you provide for us. Lord, we think of those who have been beautiful in our eyes, beautiful because of what you have done in their lives, those who have been merciful and gentle, who have been compassionate and firm in guiding us and teaching us what is right. And Lord, for those of us who have had godly mothers, we give you thanks and praise for the example that they have set. For those, Lord, who, whose mothers may not have been such, we are grateful that you have brought others into our lives to live out this example, to show us the things of Christ and to guide us in the ways of holiness and justice and righteousness. Lord, today we come before you and we remember the gifts that you have given us through our mothers, the lessons that we have learned and the things that they have taught us, that we might pursue even even greater holiness and pursue even greater righteousness, that we might pass those things along as well, that those who will come after us might walk in footsteps of faith as we seek out the footsteps of those who have gone before us. So, Lord, you have brought us here today that we might sing of your praises and be reminded of the gifts of grace and mercy that you have provided for us. Lord, there are those who are not with us today, those whose mothers have gone on, those who stand in your presence now. We pray that their hearts would be enlivened and encouraged by the promises of faith by the things that you have said are right and true and just, and this is based upon your character and upon the way that you have acted and the promises that you have made. Lord, we pray for those mothers who may be struggling today, struggling with the stresses of parenting, the stresses of balancing all areas of life, that you might come and bring peace to their hearts, that they might be focused upon Upon what you call them to do and understand your strength and your mercy and all that is given to them in Jesus Christ. Lord, we come to you and we rely completely upon him. We don't come to you on our own works, however well thought of they may be, but we rely upon only the work of Jesus Christ. So together we pray the prayer that he taught us as we say, Our Father, who art in heaven, Hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, 
Thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever. Amen. The Lord has blessed us in many ways. So we take this opportunity to return to him and his work, the things which he has bestowed upon us. So invite the ushers to come forward at this time. to us uh, come in many forms and are bountiful. You rain your grace upon us and you provide us, Lord, with talents and, and abilities. And you give us the, the courage to use them. So we're thankful for all of these things, Lord, that we might use these gifts for your glory and your purposes, that the things of Christ and your kingdom might go forward. So we seek your hand of blessing upon us, Lord, that we would use all that you have given us 
for the things of Christ. And it's in his name that we pray. Amen. Please be seated. Chapter 2. It's good. This one. All right. Exodus chapter 2. You'll notice that's not Acts. Uh, I know we've been in Acts, but uh, it's not uncommon for us, especially on a day like today, to go and pursue a, another passage. And that's what we will do this morning. Exodus chapter 2, and uh, hmm. 
I don't know. I'll read until I'm satisfied. How about that? Okay? Well, so let's stand, and, and uh, I'll read the Word of God for us today. Heavenly Father, come upon us today that we might understand the things of Christ, that we might understand the call upon our lives and how we are to live this out. And we ask this in Christ's name. Amen. Now, you'll understand the context. This is uh, the birth of Moses, and uh, as we'll, we'll look more in depth in just a moment, but the, uh, Pharaoh is attempting to kill every newborn son that is born to the Israelite people. Now a man from the house of Levi went and married a daughter of Levi, and the woman conceived and bore a son. And when she saw that he was beautiful, she hid him for three months. But when she could hide him no longer, she got him a wicker basket and covered it over with tar and pitch. Then she put the child into it and set it among the reeds by the bank of the Nile. And his sister stood at a distance to find out what would happen to him. Then the daughter of Pharaoh came down to bathe at the Nile and her maidens walking alongside the Nile. And she saw the basket among the reeds and sent her maid and she brought it to her. When she opened it, she saw the child and behold, the boy was crying and she had pity on him and said, this is one of the Hebrews children. Then his sister, that is the sister of the child in the basket, the sister said to Pharaoh's daughter, shall I go and call a nurse for you from the Hebrew women that she may nurse the child for you? And Pharaoh's daughter said to her, go ahead. So the girl went and called the child's mother. Then Pharaoh's daughter said to her, take this child away and nurse him for me, and I shall give you your wages. So the woman took the child and nursed him. And the child grew, and she brought him to Pharaoh's daughter, and he became her son. And she named him Moses and said, because I drew him out of the water. This is the word of God for us today. So please be seated. I want you to turn over to chapter 6 there. We're going to be there in just a second. So I'll get you there ahead of time. Now, it was a couple years ago, Judy and I were in Orlando for a conference. And uh, we, didn't, we were, had some time off, so we were uh, just out looking around. We went to a mall, and, and in this mall, they had a Mont Blanc store. Okay? Now, uh, so I went in, and, uh, and to look, I went to look at fountain pens that I could never afford. They had a $14,000 fountain pen there. And, and if you've ever seen my writing, it's not worth that, that much. I can, I can promise you, it's not worth that much money. So I, was, I struck up a conversation with the guy who, who was the owner. And, and as we talked about, we, we began to, to get into the electronic age and, and things like that. And he said, stop right there. He said, there is nothing like the feel of a fine fountain pen on linen paper writing a note to someone. And I thought about that for a moment, and I said, well, at least he's, I wouldn't know about a fine fountain pen on linen paper, but writing a handwritten note to somebody. Okay, now, we're going to take a little poll here. How many of you who are present today have not written a handwritten note to somebody in the last six months? How many have not? Okay. All right. Now, that's not uncommon in today's world with email and with uh, cell phones and everything. It's just not uncommon that you haven't written a note or perhaps never received a note or haven't received a handwritten note uh, in, in, in that period of time. It is just not uncommon. Understand, we have kind of digressed in our world. Uh, we've gone from handwritten notes to you can pick up the phone and reach out and touch somebody with a phone, and then we went to uh, email, and then we went to Twitter, and then we went to uh, Instagrams, which are Twitter by picture, and then we went to something, I had to ask Dan about this, called Snapchat. Snapchat are, how many of you know what Snapchat is? Okay, uh, this is my understanding of it. You, you can send a picture, and the picture will delete itself in like, five or ten seconds after you open it. Is that pretty much the way it is? Uh-huh, okay. This is like Mr. Phelps, this tape will self-destruct, okay, in ten seconds. I guess, I guess they've, they've come up with this so that you can send stupid pictures of yourself and then they'll delete themselves do, doing stupid things. I say, you know, not stupid pictures, but doing stupid things so that when you interview for your next job, he won't, the boss won't get on your Facebook page and look at it, okay? Something like that, Okay. 
Although this has resulted in millions, I have to say this, millions of people perhaps never actually getting a handwritten note or never actually writing a note themselves or what is worse, even thinking that nothing really of historic import has happened outside of what they've heard on Twitter in the last 20 minutes. Well, if I didn't hear about it, it must not be important because we're instantaneous in today's world. Now, now, now let's draw some conclusions, and, and I'm, I'm going to draw the worst conclusions that I could think of. There's one of the Kardashians, and I don't know who they are, uh, but one of them, because you see this the picture of this, this person, and, and she's going to have a baby to somebody she wasn't married to, and, and, and there are all these, these women who are waiting for her to disclose what it's going to be like to be a celebrity mom. I don't, I don't think she has any real talent to make her a celebrity. She just is created by our society. And how she handles this, and, and they're waiting to hear it as she tweets it out 140 characters at a time. Now, mothers, can you bestow your motherly wisdom 140 characters at a time? As long as it says, because I said so. Uh, that's, that's a good tweet, okay? Uh, I don't know. Now, let me state Randy Jenkins can only get you so far in being a good mother or a godly woman for obvious reasons, okay? If we want to find out the answers to those questions, we have to go to the sources. We have to go to those who have lived it, who have sacrificed for it, and perhaps given all that they were for their children and for those around them. Now, on Mother's Day, we like to go to Scripture. We like to look at examples of godly women and the struggles they faced and the sacrifices they made and the joys that they have experienced in carrying out basically what is this sacred privilege, and it is to be a mother. Now, many of us in this room will never know that experience. Being male, I will never know that experience. You understand that God created man what? Male and female. So... I don't understand what goes on inside of a mother's brain. Most mothers don't understand what goes on inside of a father's brain. We are made that way. We are supposed to be different. And that's why it takes mother and father to raise children. Because we come with these different perspectives and these different understandings and the different ways to go about it. So we rejoice in the differences. We don't, you know, I don't go home and say, Judy, Judy, you need to think more like me. Heaven forbid that she would think more like me. And I can't think more like her. Why? Because she is a woman, and I am not. Okay? I am not. So on Mother's Day, we like to go and look at these places and and find these principles and examples of godliness that can apply to all of us across the board. And I tell you, it will take, it will require us to seek more wisdom than those who can tweet it out in 140 characters, okay? And probably more wisdom than those who have ever Instagrammed a picture of themselves doing something silly, okay? So let's examine our passage. We're going to jump to chapter 6 first, and and we'll get an understanding versus... uh, We'll start about uh, verse 16. I want you to go there. Now here in in chapter 2, we're introduced to a woman named Jochebed. Jochebed. She stands out for her selflessness, her love, her sacrifice, and that those actions of her motivated from a trust in the Lord made possible the exodus of God's people and really changed the course of history. She relied upon the sovereign care of our Heavenly Father, and she is listed in Hebrews chapter 11 in the great hall of faith as somebody who acted in faith. Now, Jochebed was an Israelite, One of God's chosen people and a daughter of Levi. That's why we're in chapter 6, verse uh, 16. We'll start in 16. And these are the names of the sons of Levi according to their generations. Gershon, Kohath, and Merari. And the length of Levi's life was 137 years. The sons of Gershon, Libni, and Shemai according to their families. And the sons of Kohath, Amran, and Izhar, and Hebron, and Uziel. And the length of Kohath's life was 130 years, 33 years. And the sons of Merari and Malai and Mushai, these are the families of the Levites according to their generations. And Amram married his father's sister, Jochebed, 
And she bore him Aaron and Moses, and the length of Amran's life was 137 years. Now, I go to there because I want you to understand that Levi was Moses' grandfather and great-grandfather at the same time. I can't make it up, okay? This is what it was. He married, Amran married his father's sister, Jochebed. Now, this, I highlight this because, you know, it, it's too strange to be true. Well, Scripture puts in all the strange things in people's lives, warts and all, so to speak. Now, was this uncommon? Well, apparently no, no further mention is made, so this must have been somewhat of a common practice. Um, but it, it only adds to show the validity of Scripture. If you were going to write a a fictional account of something, you wouldn't put the weird things in. You would want to make the people look as good as possible. But here you have Levi, who is both Moses' grandfather and his great-grandfather. So back to chapter 2. Jochebed marries Amran, and evidently they were very dedicated and, and godly people, and because they both were willing to defy the order of Pharaoh... And, the, and follow the commandments of God. So let's look at the order of Pharaoh back in Exodus 1. We'll begin in verse 15. Now this all came about because the Pharaoh's uh, experts told him that some deliverer was coming. So he said, well, if it's going to be a deliverer, it's going to be a male. I'm going to kill all the male children. Then the king of Egypt spoke to the Hebrew midwives, one of whom was named Sephra and the other was named Puah, And he said, when you are helping the Hebrew women to give birth and see them upon the birth stool, if it is a son, then you shall put him to death. If it is a daughter, then she shall live. But the midwives feared God and did not do as the king of Egypt had commanded them, but let the boys live. So the kings of Egypt called for the midwives and said to them, why have you done this thing and let the boys live? Now, for... This is one of those binds that we're, we're put in. Uh, scripture tells us that we should tell the truth. Let your yes be yes and your no be no. Unless you're a midwife who's ordered to kill all the boys and then you can lie. Okay? And the midwives said to Pharaoh, Because the Hebrew women are not as the Egyptian women, for they are vigorous, and they give birth before the midwife can get to them. So God was good to the midwives, and the people multiplied and became very mighty. And it came about because the midwives feared God that he established households for them. Then Pharaoh commanded all his people, saying, Every son who is born you are to cast into the Nile, and every daughter you are to keep alive. So because the midwives were not doing it, Pharaoh dictated to all the Egyptians, If you find an infant male Hebrew child, throw that child into the Nile. Okay, That's, that's, That's just the rule. This is what they were to do. So Pharaoh really is being used as a tool of Satan. Okay? He's engaged in a war of genocide against the people of, of Israel, the Hebrews. Because they were becoming so numerous and they were kept in slavery, uh, there's a point in time when there are too many slaves to keep control of and a fear of an uprising. That is what Pharaoh is facing. So all the Egyptian boys must be cast into the Nile to die in the waters there. And we need to understand and, and feel the force of this to appreciate this is appreciate. This is not a fairy tale. This is a cold history. This is a reality of what has happened. And this kind of activity is not really unknown throughout history as tyrants and dictators attempt to control their populations even to the point of who and when these people can have children. We see this in history. Uh, Pol Pot did this in Cambodia. And if we look even today in China and their one-child policy... It is not uncommon to see forced sterilizations, forced abortions, and even government officials. We hear stories, and you can read articles about government officials in China showing up after the birth of the second, third, or fourth child and coming into the household and taking the child and killing the child. So they're committing infanticide in different places in the world. Well, infanticide is what is ordered by Pharaoh here, that if they see a male child, they are to kill that child. So the world was crying out for the death of her son, 
in particular, the deliverer, the one who would come and free the Hebrew people. Now, did she know that he was the one to free the Hebrew people? We don't see any evidence of it, but she loved her son. She wanted her son to survive. But Pharaoh had ordered that every child, every male child, was to be drowned. Now, put yourself in a position to look at this. If your people were facing extermination by the execution of every male infant child, how would you go about saving them? Well, naturally, if you're God, you send a male infant child into that society to save your people. But, of course, the decree has gone out by man that every male infant child is to be killed. That's what God does. That's what he does. He comes in with the things that we think are impossible and things that we view there's no way that this can be achieved, and yet he does them. This is the hand of God's providence in the world. Let's look at verses 2 and 3. And the woman conceived and bore a son, and when she saw that he was beautiful, or your, your translation may say good, this means beautiful, he was complete, um, uh, you know, it's not, it, there's nothing intrinsically good about Moses, more so than anybody else, uh, but it is, it is, he was complete, there was no defect. So we, we continue, but when she couldn't hide him no longer, a couple months, you know how babies are, uh, they really don't take orders that well at this age, you know, shh, shh, they don't, they don't care about that. So he's probably crying and making too much noise, and it's difficult to hide him. So the mother technically, Jochebed technically complies with the law of Pharaoh to cast her child into the Nile. Except she does what? Puts him in a little basket. Okay, puts him in a little basket. Now it's interesting, there's only two places in scripture where this word is used. It is here in Exodus and it is back in Genesis chapter 7 when it talks about the ark. It's Tebah. Uh, And so the ark, which is built to house Noah and his family and all the animals, uh, is the same word that is used to house Moses as he is cast into the Nile. So once again, God is going to save his people through the use of an ark. In fact, we're told that this basket or this ark is covered with pitch and bitumen, just like Noah did. Now, why did Jochebed do this? Well, the text doesn't tell us exactly So, in the very least, we have a mother who is desperate to save the life of her child. At the very most, we have the Lord placing upon her heart these these senses or these instructions. It doesn't say the Lord told her to do this, but it may be that the Lord is acting through her in this fashion to protect her son. So she deposits the ark in a place where there's human traffic, and if we can even look at it, perhaps royal traffic traffic okay royal traffic it took place it took faith to place her child in this basket and trust him into the hand of the lord how many of you would take your child and go down the tennessee river put him in a basket and turn him loose and say lord it's all up to you now this they can't do that to the 13 year old okay we're talking about the infant we're talking about the infant and trust the infant into the hand of the lord so off it goes Now, the Nile was the same instrument that was being used to destroy all the other male children at that time. So it takes faith for her to hand off her child and and trust him into the hand of the Lord. Now, the sister, let's look, uh, verse 4, and his sister stood at a distance to find out what would happen to him. Now, we think, think, well, she's got this great faith, but yet she puts his sister there to watch out for him. Uh, remember, Matthew Henry said, the duty is ours, events are the Lord, Lord's. Duty is ours, but events are the Lord's. So we are to pray like only the Lord can do it and act as if it relies upon us and to seek him in all those things. So Pharaoh's daughter finds him. Look at verse 5. The daughter of Pharaoh came down to bathe at the Nile and her maidens walking alongside the Nile and she saw the basket among the reeds. This is not the only daughter of Pharaoh. Pharaoh, This Pharaoh in particular had about a hundred children, and 60 of them were daughters. 
So once these daughters were born, Pharaoh may never have seen this daughter for years at a time, considering he had 60 other daughters. Okay? So she comes down to the Nile to bathe and sees the basket in the reeds. This is the same word that's used for the, the Red Sea as described in chapter 13 of Exodus. So they get it and they open up this little miniature ark and here's this baby boy. She immediately recognizes it as a Hebrew. Why? Maybe it was the cloth or that the baby was wrapped in or something like that. But she is moved with compassion to save the life of this child. Now understand, here's basically the second mother in Moses' life. The first mother is moved by faith to save his life and entrust him into the Lord's hand. The second mother is moved by compassion. Now, it was, it, it, if Pharaoh had caught her saving the life of this male Hebrew child, he would have ordered her death. So she puts her life at risk to save Moses and this infant child. Well, look at what happens in verse 7. There's Moses' sister, and he, she's kind of hiding behind the reeds, and she sees that Moses is pulled out by the daughter of Pharaoh. So his sister comes, and, and the way that she asks the question is very important. Shall I go and call a nurse for you from the Hebrew women that she may nurse the child for you? The question, and especially it's, it's laid out for us in the, in the Hebrew, is all about Pharaoh's daughter. There is hardly any emphasis upon the baby. It's all about what can I do for you to make your life easier? What can I do to serve you? Now imagine, here you have Pharaoh's daughter who is taking advice and counsel from a, what, eight-year-old Hebrew girl who comes out of the river, who just happens to come out of the river at the same time that Pharaoh's daughter pulls out Moses from the river. Okay? I don't know. Just coincidence, wasn't it? It's coincidence. Look at verse 8. And Pharaoh's daughter says, go ahead. So the girl went and called the child's mother. Imagine that. Here you have in God's providence an eight-year-old girl talking to Pharaoh's daughter who has just saved Moses from the river which Pharaoh has ordered all infant children, all infant males shall be cast into So you've got the first mother trusting Moses into the Lord's hand. The second mother drawing Moses out of the river and adopting him as her own. And then you have the eight-year-old girl counseling Pharaoh's daughter. And then she says, should I go get a wet nurse? And of course, because of the death of all these infant boys, there are probably plenty of women who would do that. It just so happens in God's providence that Moses is nursed by his mother and who is also paid by the Pharaoh's treasury. Look at verse 9. And Pharaoh's daughter said to her, Take the child away, nurse him for me, I shall give you your wages. So God is going to save his people by inserting into history the deliverer, as in the form of an infant child, going to be saved by being cast into the Nile, who is then going to be pulled out and be raised as one of Pharaoh's grandchildren. But first he's going to be nursed and raised by his own mother, who is going to be paid from Pharaoh's treasury to do this. I mean, who could come up with this except God, okay? This this is the way that the Lord works. So it took great faith for Jochebed to raise her son knowing that at a certain age she was going to hand him over to Pharaoh's daughter and give him away. Let's go to Acts chapter 7. Now there's a purpose in all this, obviously. Acts chapter 7. She gave up her son to save the nation. I don't think she fully understood that yet. All she wanted was her son to live. That's what she wanted more than anything else. Acts chapter 7 verse 21.
And we'll go back to verse 20. And it was at this time that Moses was born, and he was lovely in the sight of God. He was nurtured three months in his father's home. And after he had been exposed, Pharaoh's daughter took him away and nurtured him as her own son. And Moses was educated in all the learnings of the Egyptians. And he was a man of power in words and deeds. Remember all that we've gone through to show how the Lord used all those things that the the world was specifically going to kill the infants and into the Nile and all those things. And now he's raised in Pharaoh's household so that he may learn the inner workings of the Egyptian mind and the Egyptian way of life. Why? Because he will be the instrument of God to free his people and destroy the Egyptians. Remember if we jump to the plagues, there were ten plagues. The ten plagues addressed the ten gods of Egypt. And each plague became built and got worse and worse, finally ending in the death of the firstborn. Okay? This was God simply crushing Egypt and saving his people. And Moses was the instrument of communicating these things to the Egyptians and taking his people out. Okay, flip back to chapter 2 of Exodus. Now the child grew. She brought him to Pharaoh's daughter. He became her son. Ladies, I can't imagine what it would have been like to raise a son for two, three years, four years perhaps, and then to one day walk up and say, here, Pharaoh's daughter, this is now your son, and to turn and to walk away. But this is what it was. And the child grew, and she brought him to Pharaoh's daughter, and she became her son. And she named him Moses, because I drew him out of the water. It's an interesting thing here. In the Egyptian, the name Moses means Son of. Okay, usually our names have something that would show the end of it, like uh, son of James or son of Roman or son of something like that. So to show, in, in technical terms, the genitive of it. It's a genitive son of somebody. There's no, there's no somebody listed here. Moses simply means son of. Son of what? Just son of. And then the Hebrew, it means to draw out. So the princess is saying he's a son of somebody, and I've taken him out of the Nile. That's why I've named him Moses. So you have, over the course of this little narrative, five women who save the Hebrews. You have the two midwives who lie, and the Lord blesses them because they're protecting the lives of these innocents. You have the mother of Moses. You have the sister of Moses. These four acted in faith. The two midwives, Jochebed and the sister of Moses, all acted in faith. The daughter Pharaoh was simply one of the instruments that God used. There's no evidence that she had faith or acted in, in that belief. She just was moved with compassion to do so. See, it's not our job, especially today, mothers, but for all of us, it's not our job to be conformed to the rules of the world when those rules run counter to the things of God. It's not our job to say, well, yeah, Pharaoh says you got to cast your children into the Nile, so I better kill my child. That's not what we are to do. God says we are called to trust him and not be conformed to the things of the world, but be transformed. Transformed by what? The renewing of our mind and his word, so that we might know what is right and what is true and what is just, so that we might act in faith. Now, ladies, I only understand the pressures that men face today. I don't grasp the, the extent of the pressures that are faced by women today. But God says this is how we are to live and we are to remain faithful to what it says. And if the world says we need to go in a different direction than what God's word says, we need not go in that direction. We need not pursue those things. We need not pursue what the world says is right or beautiful or just. We need to pursue the things that God says. And what will happen in the end? What happens because of those things? Well, scripture's pretty clear. It's your children rise up and call you blessed. You know the things of the Lord. And he provides for you. So let's pray. Lord, we see in this example women of faith who act in ways that that seem contrary to the wisdom of the world. 
they seem actually foolish. But yet you have used those things, yet you ordered the world in such a way that all these things would take place, that the act of a faithful mother, an attempt to save her child, would really bring deliverance and freedom for your people. Lord, when we look at this, this is a big issue and a big picture. Help us to understand in our individual lives what this means. How are we to live? How are we to walk in faithfulness? How are we to act because of these truths? What is it in our lives that we need not pursue any longer if we've been pursuing the things of the world? What are the things that we need to seek after? How can we live in faithfulness as mothers and as believers today? Open our eyes to these things, Lord, that we might pursue what is right and just and pleasing in your sight. We ask this in Christ's name. Amen. Our hymn is 540. Happy the home when God is there. Let's all stand and sing 540. send us out today mindful of the challenge before us to live lives in obedience to you no matter what the cost no matter what the world thinks is wise or smart we need to be faithful and lord we rejoice in the examples of mothers and wisdom around us that we've seen that they have lived out before us lives of faithfulness and taught us the things of christ Send us out, Lord, that we might know these things and teach them to those that we come in contact with. We ask in Christ's name. Amen.